paid a technician to come and help me. <laughs> On a shirt. I'll adjust it later on. <laughs> well, good morning, everybody. The last time I stood up here, it was a lovely summer's day. We had all the windows open, the side doors open, our sort of makeshift air conditioning system operating, and uh, those days seem a long way off, don't they? <laughs> so uh, I do have a slightly tricky task this morning, uh, the title being of the talk, When You Believe in God But You Don't Think He's Fair. Now, I guess many of us can remember parts of our childhood, can't we? And I guess every one of us at some point during our childhood uttered the words, It's not fair. I have a brother who's four years older than me, so quite often during my childhood I was often, often uttering those words. It's not fair, he's got more than me. It's not fair, I've got to go to bed earlier than my older brother. And then when we move into our teenage years, and we still th say things like, it's not fair, why can't I stay at the party till 2am? Why have I got to be home by half past 11? Oh, you're ruining my life. It's not fair. But also, that feeling of being treated unfairly stays with us, even as adults. And we may not express it so openly as we did when we were children, but I expect each one of us has at some point in our adult lives thought that life is treating us pretty unfairly. Perhaps it's money worries, perhaps it's illness, perhaps it's relationship problems, accommodation problems, being overlooked for promotion at work, the loss of a loved one. Whatever the situation, where we feel we're not being treated fairly and others seem to be better off than us, we feel it's unfair. And we might even get to that stage where we question God and shout, why me, God? I thought you were meant to be the God of love. Why are you treating me so unfairly? Why am I suffering these misfortunes when I've served you so faithfully? Why don't you punish the ungodly people? Why can't you be fair? The trouble is, we only view fairness from our own point of view, don't we? It's all fine when we don't suffer from an illness or the loss of a loved one. It's fine when we get that promotion or we have plenty of money or our accommodation problems are solved. We don't need to worry too much about the other folk who are ill, homeless, poor, bereaved, unloved, who didn't get that promotion because we're fine. We've got what's fair in our view. Well, here's the reality. Fairness, as we understand it, does not fit into God's plan for humankind. Shock headline, God is not fair. Now, if you saw that headline in bold type at the top of a newspaper, you'd definitely want to buy that newspaper to read the rest of the article, wouldn't you? We know God is love. We know God's love is outrageously generous, generous beyond almost belief, and that's where faith comes in. And our reading this morning about the parable of the vineyard owner and the hiring of the workers 
is categorically not about fairness in the workplace. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all in favour of equality in the workplace and fairness, but that's not what the parable is teaching us. The parable is not about fairness or rewards, but it's about salvation. It's a strong teaching point about God's kingdom and his grace and his generosity. Fairness has become the battle cry of our society. When something isn't fair, it's viewed as inherently wrong or even evil. We've built into our culture and society the idea that there are no winners and losers, but everyone is a winner. Children do not fail. Everyone gets a trophy or a prize for taking part. Everything has to be fair. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't encourage and reinforce positive aspects with children and young people, and even with adults, but sometimes learning that failure is not necessarily a negative experience, but one out of which positive experiences can emerge is not a bad thing. Unlike when I was at primary school, taking part in the egg and spoon race. Birchwood County Primary School, that's not obviously an illustration of me, but just to demonstrate the issue. But I can distinctly remember lining up for the race, the teacher telling us exactly what she required, the spoon to be held at the base of the handle, egg placed on the spoon, and then run as fast as you can without dropping the egg to the finishing line. Well, being a lawful, law-abiding seven-year-old, I complied with these instructions to the letter. I remember her saying, her last words, don't touch the egg. So I struggled to start with by getting the egg off the ground, whereas everyone else just did that, of course, as you should have done, and then started the race. My friend, Michael Tokely, was the biggest cheat going, <laughs> because he got the egg, and he literally chucked it towards the finishing line. It's a wooden egg, by the way. This is a hard-boiled egg. It landed about a foot from the finishing line, and then he ran full pelt to the end, picked up the egg, and ran across the finishing line with it. My other friends, Billy Bullymore, interesting name, <laughs> Nigel Ralph, Richard O'Born, most of them held the spoon and the egg like this and ran full pelt. I was still more or less at the starting point, struggling to get the egg on the spoon, shaking away, dropping it frequently. So, of course, I went up to protest most vehemently to the teacher that this race needed to be run again because it had been carried out completely unfairly with all these cheats. Whereupon the teacher grabbed me by the ear, as you were allowed to do that in those days in the 1950s, and took me over to the seat and told me to sit down, be quiet, and stop showing off. Now, I thought that was terribly unfair. Yeah. Uh, the fact that I'm still talking about it 58 years <laughs> after the event, <laughs> you can tell I've almost got over it. I reckon probably about 60 years of counselling, intensive counselling, and I should be able to put that whole incident behind me. <laughs> but it's funny, isn't it? You do carry these things with you through life, that sense of unfairness and injustice. And... Uh, it's got that slide on there, but there was one picture of that boy in there who was literally cheating completely by holding the egg in one hand, the spoon in the other, a 
think the guy in the uh, yeah, grey trousers and black top, completely ignoring rules, <laughs> running to the finishing line, then he'd probably do that over the finishing line. So we live in a culture that demands fairness at all times and in all respects. The problem is, fairness does not appear to be a biblical concept. The God we serve is a God of justice, but nowhere in the Bible does it indicate that he is fair. Indeed, the idea of fair is a very human concept. The Bible never attributes the idea of fairness to God. Now, I don't claim to be a biblical scholar, but on my search of the Bible references, I can only find three instances where the word fair, meaning equal or the same, is used. And each time, it's in terms of how people should treat other people fairly. If you look in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25, verse 15, the Israelites are commanded to use a fair weight. And the verse issues a command to use a fair weights and measures, and goes on to say, for the Lord your God detests anyone who deals dishonestly. In the book of Colossians, Paul instructs masters to treat their slaves fairly. Colossians 4 verse 1. Well, quite rightly, we don't have slaves anymore, but you still hear of depressing modern-day examples of illegal slavery, slave gang masters that imprison and threaten and beat up their workers. Sadly, that still goes on today. The final reference I can find to fairness in the Bible can be found in the second book of Corinthians. And the Apostle Paul explains that it's fair for the people to supply the needs of those who have less, so that at some point, those people they have helped could do the same back to them when they are in need. And in fact, as it's gift day, just a quick read of that um, verses from Corinthians is worth reading about Christian giving. And in my book of the Bible, it says Generos gen generosity encouraged. So chapter 8, second book of Corinthians says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not ex do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. 
Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to, to, to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written. He who gathered much did not, did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. It's a useful sort of lesson for us, isn't it, on this uh, our gift aid day. If you're already given, that's great, and we do appreciate all that uh, you do. But if you haven't yet given or you want to consider your heart and give further, then speak to Nick about further giving that can be fruitful to the further the work of this church. Now, in all the instances where I talked about fairness, God was not calling for equal treatment, but merely that we would follow the golden rule, to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Having only found three references about fairness in the Bible, the surprising thing is that the Bible seems to be full of examples of seemingly unfair situations. It seems that God has a completely different sense of what is fair and unfair compared to how we would define what is fair and unfair. And Jesus made this blatantly obvious when he turned upside down what was normally considered to be a just fair and sensible arrangement. In the Bible, we read of one occasion when Jesus was watching the rich people making such a big show of dropping their bags of money into the temple treasury. Now, a bag of money is a lot of money, and everyone was very impressed at the generosity of these uh, rich people. But when Jesus saw a poor widow come in and drop two small coins into the offering bowl, Jesus claimed that she had given more than all the others put together. Because Jesus saw in her, her heart that she was just giving her all to God. The rich people could afford 10, 50, 100 bags of coins and it wouldn't have made a dent in their income. But that woman was giving her all to God. But what about the feast that was prepared for the disgraced runaway son when he returned home after wasting all his inheritance? Nothing was given to the son who worked hard, remained faithful, while his brother was out having a good time. Where's the justice and fairness in that? What about the thief on the cross next to Jesus? He had lived a life with total disregard for God and basic human decency. And what does Jesus do when the thief makes a last-minute confession? He promises that he will be saved and enjoy the good life in paradise. Now that hardly seems fair. Remember the time a woman took a whole jar of costly perfume, costing over a year's salary, poured it on Jesus' feet. On his feet, not even on his head. The money spent on that perfume could have fed many hungry people and you would expect Jesus to tell her to stop being foolish 
and to use what God had given her wisely. Instead, he praises her for doing such a wonderful thing. You see, the common theme that runs throughout the scriptures, especially in Jesus' way of counting things, is that it's different to ours. In our way of reckoning, one plus one equals two, always two. But God's maths is completely different. Two small coins are worth more than a heap of money. One sheep is of equal value to 99 sheep. When a son runs away and blows all his cash, he's loved as much as a son who has always done the right thing. Whether a person works one hour or 12 hours, it makes no difference to the vineyard owner who treats everyone alike. This story illustrated in our reading of the labourers in the vineyard is not about some people deserving more than others, or of a farmer who shortchanges his hardest workers. All the workers had agreed to work for a set wage. Everyone got what had been promised. The problem was that some of the workers couldn't accept that the boss had the right to be generous to whomever he wished. It sounds unfair, and humanly speaking, it is. But what Jesus is trying to get through to us is that if God were to be fair, if God paid us according to what we deserve, we would all end up in hell. After all, we read in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. But if you know your scriptures, you know the verse doesn't end there. It goes on to say, for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Principles relating to what is fair and unfair do not come into God's way of thinking. God doesn't use accountancy methods to decide what we deserve. In fact, the word deserve does not apply to the way God thinks of us. In every situation where Jesus interacts with people, He's telling us something about the generosity of God. God is generous. God is full of grace. God is forgiving. He gives gifts. He doesn't give according to what we deserve. So the question for us is, when we look at our own lives, do we count our blessings or our misfortunes? Do we pay attention to the areas of plenty in our lives or what we perceive we lack? Do we live by gratitude or envy? Do we look to others in solidarity and compassion or see them only as competition? The thing is about this choice is that it really is a choice, as unavoidable as it is simple. You just can't be grateful and envious at the same time. So which is it going to be? Jesus died for us. How terribly unfair that is. He is the sinless one, and yet he dies because of the sin of everyone else. 
When Jesus was hanging on that cross, suffering a slow and agonizingly painful death, we might have expected him to scream, this is unfair, I'm the innocent one. But there's no condemnation uttered from his lips, just words of forgiveness. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. God gave us his son rather than giving up on humanity. The death of Jesus was unfair, but that's the way God does things. We call it grace. Philip Yancey, the American uh, author, Christian author, calls this the new maths of grace. When we go shopping, all our purchases are added up and we're told what to pay. Now, if God did that, we couldn't afford all that we owe. But God doesn't calculate what we deserve, but he's generous and forgiving. The disciple Peter asked Jesus, how many times shall I forgive someone who sins against me? And he thinks he's been pretty clever because he answers his own question. He says, up to seven times? Peter thought he was being very generous. Not seven times, Jesus answered, but 70 times seven. Forgiveness is not something that be, can be counted with an abacus or a calculator. And so, for the follower of Jesus, there should be no limit to the number of times we reach out to another person in forgiveness. Now, that sounds extremely unfair. There must surely be a time when we say, that's it, you've hurt me for the last time, you don't deserve my friendship. As someone once said, if they don't deserve it, then I don't owe it. But according to God's new maths of grace, there is no limit. Jesus totally shatters our human standards of fairness and justice by giving each one of us his love and grace without us having to work for it or deserving it. He sets a new standard for our relationship with others. God is generous with his forgiveness and we are called upon to practice this kind of divine forgiveness in our daily lives. He calls us to step over all our arguments about who is right and wrong, to overcome that part of our hearts that feels hurt and wronged, to put aside feelings of jealousy, jealousy and unfairness. Now that's a hard thing to do because we've ingrained in us the merit system. You get what you deserve. And Philip Yancey says, I never find forgiveness easy and rarely do I find it completely satisfying. Nagging injustices remain and the wounds still cause pain. I have to approach God again and again, yielding him to him the residue of what I thought I had committed to him long ago. I do so because the Gospels make the clear connections. God forgives my debts as I forgive my debtors. The reverse is also true. Only by living in the stream of God's grace will I find the strength to respond with grace toward others. On the 23rd of August, 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King delivered a famous speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. 
That speech became known as the, the dream speech, I have a dream speech. And besides the aspects of the speech where he dreams of a day when black people will be treated as fairly as white people and will have the same rights as white people, he also dreams of a time when God's rule will hold sway. He says that he has a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plains, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Words taken straight out of the Bible from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 4. And at the end of his speech, Dr. King quotes from the words of an old Negro spiritual, Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. It's not because we're deserving, it's not because it's what's due to us out of fairness, but it's simply and only through God's amazing and generous love that we can truly say we are free at last. We're now going to try something different. We're going to sing those words incorporated into um, a country gospel song with a very simple melody. The song is quite a slow song. It doesn't matter if you haven't heard it before, you'll be able to pick up the tune almost as it goes along. And I want you to sing the words from the chorus. The chorus says, I'm free from the fear of tomorrow. I'm free from the guilt of the past. I've traded my shackles for a glorious song, I'm free. Praise the Lord, free at last. But this time the band aren't going to play it. They're going to sing it, and we're all going to sing it to a backing track. So um, a lovely um, American gospel singer, Linda Randall, will be singing the verses, and we'll be coming in with the chorus part. So hopefully this works. We shall see. So long I search for life's meaning Enslaved by the world and my greed Then the door of my prison was opened by love for
to a time of uh, communion. If I can ask Jackie and Fiona to join me. I'm just going to remove the strange obstacle. <laughs> 